and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light 'em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is March, March the 13th. We're coming up on St. Patrick's Day, yes. Not that Irish stuff, that Irish cliché. <laughs> the other day someone said to me, oh yes, you know. Ah, you're the people of the book. Language, language, you're the ones. Wordsmiths. I said, well, that may be true, but the Irish, that is, um, some of us, I said, use words to express damn near everything under the sun except uh, our own feelings and emotions. Ah, is that a masculine trait? Of course, I'm only half Irish. The worst half, that would be my... Father, he's from County Kerry. Is it a masculine trait, yes, to use language to disguise your feelings, to, uh, what you call that, mask yourself? Uh, someone said that, uh, yes, slaves did that, oppressed people did that, laughter. It's so interesting. I was trying to think last night about the, the notion that it's masculine, uh, I remember as a girl of 20, I think, asking a lover of 40, uh, he was going to a psychiatrist. It was something new in those days, back in the 50s. I uh, asked him what his experience had been. I had not yet been psychoanalyzed or even into therapy. And I, I said, what, um, what does your psychiatrist say to you? What... Uh, what questions and so forth. And he said, well, the psychiatrist whom he had been seeing for several years uh, said that he uh, he asked him uh, to, what is it, be real, as we said in those days. He had said to him, his shrink had said to him, that he, my lover, had not yet said anything uh, that he really meant. And I've thought about that for, well, half a century now. And I'm trying to think, I think of Emily Dickinson. She said, uh, I like a look of agony because I know it's true. I think that's why I went into theater because I was so, so anxious to be authentic, real, genuine. And the only way I could do that was on stage. Well, I suppose there's some contradiction there, but I'm not sure. Anyway... I, I, what is it? I have the struggle of most neurotics. Uh, I don't know whether Irish are neurotic, but uh, I don't know. I had a reading Sunday night over at Books Incorporated, and we talked a lot about uh, 
This Irish thing. Uh, <laughs> yes. Oh, Samuel Beckett said, an Irishman's brain is only his imagination. We talked a great deal about the great hunger. It wasn't a famine. The food was right there. The English took it and shipped it out. Yes, it was the great hunger. And how that's become a metaphor. Uh, those of us who come from the Anglo-Irish Protestant crowd, we have our own particular confusion, our own, um, what is that, inward agony, as James Joyce used to say, home is where you hang yourself. <laughs> In my home, we resisted the Irish shtick. Uh, my mother would never serve potatoes. Uh, my father, uh, well, he made fun of the Catholic thing, morning, noon, and night. Uh, I think sometimes when uh, I see this Irish thing coming, you know, this uh, horrible holiday, uh, the Celtic music coming, the pipes uh coming over the hill, and I think of all the catastrophes of my youth, and, oh, God, Judas Priest, waves of memory from childhood, all those nights when, having a drop taken, my father would lurch into maudlin singing and uh, tragic tales, particularly tales of my mother's faithlessness, uh, <laughs> Ah, uh, since I was the uh, result of my mother's faithlessness, it got pretty grim in the wee hours of the morning. Uh, I'm afraid that uh, the sight of him singing, I will take you home again, Kathleen, standing in the buff by the sea, uh, <laughs> will never leave me, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. I guess the pagans had more fun. They were all darling boys, darling boys. Uh, at the reading, I was trying to recommend films. I recommended Richard Harris in a movie called The Field. John Hurt is in that movie, too. He has an excellent part. That's a movie that I watch, oh, maybe once a year. Richard Harris plays the quintessential Irishman. His angst, his uh, bitterness, the loss of his field, his bitter land. Uh, he goes quite mad, and having destroyed everyone... He loves, uh, he winds up the movie, he ends the movie beating back the sea with his great stick. He, he's trying to kill the ocean itself. Uh, I think that would be my pick for the number one film. A woman I n met at the reading mentioned John Sayles' picture, The Secret of Ron Inish. Uh, I recommend that one for children. I found that many young people, uh, well, it's not their fault. They're so used to these vroom, vroom movies that The Secret of Rowan Inish was a little slow for them, a little gentle. But uh, if you sit with them quietly, you know, get the video and watch it at home. The Secret of Rowan Inish is a wonderful, dreamy fairy tale for children. <laughs> yes, the uh, the mother, the... the uh, oh, well... Uh, you know the secret of Rowan Inish. Go check it out. I won't tell you the story, otherwise that spoils it for you. But uh, once again, it's the mysterious feminine. goes back to the sea. We had a great time at the reading. Uh, 
Erin Gobra, Ireland forever, that sort of thing. Uh, I, I, uh, saw Mary Rudge there, and I thought that I would begin today. I'd like to read you just one of Mary's poems. I'll just open it up and steal it. I didn't even ask her. <laughs> but I grabbed it when I left the house. Mary Rudge is a local poet, uh, a national treasure, actually, uh, a wonderful woman. The book that she was reading from Sunday night at Books Incorporated was called For Ireland. And this is called The Irish Poet. Mary Rudge writes, She looks at me off the page in an anthology. Caught in the middle of a word expressing the invisible mind, I feel that rush of sound off the page. Reading her poem, The Poet's Day, she wrote. Morning, and the poet up again and out and about his job of collecting the day's correct and sacred phrases. She writes as of him another, but I see her, true poet too, putting into air that is everywhere words. If I open and close the book, the air moves. We do not breathe without air that has moved each other. All words share the same air. What is language that separates country by country, country from country, sex from sex? His, her, each, as if we are separate. The poem caught in our breath, the sound expressed, as well as the word not yet found stirs in us. That's Mary Rogers' poem. Mary Rogers is a marvelous thing. She's something... Uh, called a septipera. A septipera is a woman who has borne seven children. <laughs> she has another book called Oakland is a Holy City, which I recommend. Uh, let me read you one poem from uh, Oakland is a Holy City, just because it has two of my favorite people in it, Isadora Duncan and Gertrude Stein. Mary Rudge writes, Isadora has gone to Greece, to Hungary. The little Oakland dancing girl Isadora Duncan has gone to Greece, to Hungary, France, and Russia, too, after the great applause on 7th Street. Her childhood neighbor, Gertrude Stein, mover of words and art, has gone from East Oakland to France. Surely they've left directions for us here, the paths they found to passion and romance. <laughs> Anyway, I remember I was reading the other night uh, something about, oh, Dorothy Parker was writing about her Irish servants made me think that I must have been an Irish servant in an earlier life. Uh, it feels so familiar to me taking care of the the sick and the dying. Dorothy Parker says that her parents would go down to the boat, take the Irish immigrants off uh, bleeding, sick, you know, drag them home to the house to do the laundry. <laughs> but they got here. They made it. Yes, then they became the Kennedys. Poor Rose Kennedy. I remember how she suffered. Uh, lace curtain Irish, but still, you know, she had uh, some social uh, frictions, some attrition with the oldest members of the society there. Uh, <laughs> 
I don't know. All that nonsense fascinates me, I suppose. Some people still keep track of it. Uh, I, uh, I read the book. Yes, let's see. What is it? When the Irish became, oh, white, you know, um, the Irish have always claimed to have, uh, what is it, so much in common with African Americans. Uh, but that's such an amazing and complicated story that, uh, I think I'll save it for another time. I had brought a review with me today that uh, uh, I wanted to tell you about a, a play that's coming to town. I don't want to forget it, but uh, I think I should probably save this until um, until I've seen the play. It's a Mary Baraka or Leroy Jones play, Dutchman, and uh, it fascinated me because it was my my first um, play of Leroy Jones back in the 60s I did the play and it confused me because uh, I couldn't figure out in that play I decided that gender trumped race Uh, it's a play in which a white woman murders a uh, black man on the subway (laughs) and it's it was such a oh dear Shirley Knight, I think, made the movie, and uh, they wouldn't allow them to film it in the New York subways. They had to go to London, make it over there. Uh, anyway, it's coming out here to uh, to the Bay Area, and uh, yes, I'll wait until I've seen the production, because I'm going to guess that after 40 years, uh, they've done some radically different things with it. Um, it was confusing because we didn't know whether this uh, conflict, battle, was between a man and a woman or between the black world and the white world. And maybe there is some kind of analogy there, yes. Last week I was reading about feminist rage, associating it with Ireland and the black goddess. Uh, I've also got something here called The Creation of an Irishman, written by a friend of mine. I think I'll have time to read a little of that before I'm through. I want to mention one Irish warrior woman to you. I was just in making a tape for Thursday morning. I'm talking about Irish warrior women. The crowd that was in the Abbey Theater, uh, Lady Gregory and uh, uh, um, the man she loved, Yates, and then... Uh, Maud Gunn and the rest, and I didn't have time for one of my most favorite. She's a generation earlier. Uh, that would be Oscar Wilde's mother, someone that I have always been fascinated with. If you saw the recent film Wilde, spelled W-I-L-D-E for Oscar Wilde, uh, Vanessa Redgrave did a turn as uh, <laughs> as Speranza. It means hope. That was the the name she used, her nom de plume. But uh, actually, in in age, uh, Lady Wilde was uh, not just corpulent. She was very large, like Oscar. And, of course, Vanessa Redgrave is so uh, thin, thin as a reed. Anyway, let me read you a little bit about Lady Wilde, because I think she's the one that... Mm, if I had my druthers, uh, next to Lady Gregory, I think I'd like to have been Lady Wilde. Uh, she seems to have had the most 
freedom. Here's a little piece from Wild Irish Roses by Trina Robbins. It's tales of Bridget's, Kathleen's, and Warrior Queens, both the literary women, the saints, the mythic women, and the real ones. Uh, you know, all the way up to Mother Jones. She was real enough. Uh, let's see. Yes, the woman who wrote um, Gone with the Wind was Irish. That's another tale for another day. Uh, Lady Wilde. Uh, September 1845 was the first year of the Great Hunger, the Potato Famine. And uh, a teenage girl, Jane was her name, yes. She watched the burial of Tom Davis, Thomas Davis, a poet, a political writer, and co-founder of a pro-Irish weekly newspaper called The Nation. And she went on to write for that uh, paper, The Nation. And uh, <laughs> she became, what is we call them, the rebel girl. She became a rebel girl. She was from a very respectable Protestant family. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Her father was a successful lawyer. Her grandfather had been a deacon. Um, she was very well educated, uh, she had lived the carefree life of any other rich Protestant girl in Dublin, but once she got the uh, revolution in her blood, she started publishing uh, under that pseudonym Sperenza. Her nationalistic poetry and prose uh, got her into some hot water. And see, she wrote angry poems about the famine year, about the starving Irish peasants evicted from their homes to die on the road. Oh, we know not what is smiling, and we know not what is dying, but we're hungry, very hungry, and we cannot stop our crying. It's not quite in a category with Yeats. I had some long poems about... Uh, the Irish famine from Yeats, but I will save those for another day. The poem ends with Speranza's desire for a divine punishment. She writes, but God will yet take vengeance for the souls for whom Christ died. A ghastly spectral army before great God will stand and arraign ye as our murderers, O spoilers of our land. Her writing grew more militant, and in, instead of calling on God, she started to call to the people of Ireland for action. It's funny because Oscar was never an activist. Never mind. She writes, Ireland, Ireland, it is no petty insurrection that summons you to the field. It is a death struggle between the oppressor and the slave. Strike, strike. Later on she wrote... Uh, Oh, for a hundred thousand muskets glittering brightly in the light of heaven. In the name, then, of your trampled, degraded country, I call on you to make this aspiration of your souls a deed. Anyway, she was calling for armed rebellion, you know, a violent overthrow of the state. So the government destroyed all the issues of the nation that uh, published that prose. They arrested the editor, Gavin Duffy. <laughs> anyway, at this point, she uh, she stood up and proclaimed that she was Speranza, a woman, yes, a woman. Everyone was thrilled. The 
educated, well-off, sophisticated people loved her, and she made converts to the cause. She was this tall, dark-haired beauty in those days. The editor of The Nation uh, tried the... Uh, uh, he was tried, yes. He was tried by the Brits, and uh, uh, each time he was acquitted... Treason, he was tried for treason nine times, at which point he wound up elected to the British Parliament and he organized a tenants' union to help the evicted Irish farmers. Anyway, Speranza Jane married an eye surgeon and folklorist. His name was Sir William Wilde, and thus she became Lady Wilde. And uh, in 1855... She gave birth to Oscar Fengal O'Flaherty Wilde. <laughs> she named him after a hero in Irish mythology, one of the Finians. Anyway, her husband was somewhat, uh, let's see, her elder. He died in 1876. So Speranza took Oscar and his brother William to London. She wrote about folklore. Finally, uh, Yes, and she wrote about Irish history and legend. She finally published a book called Ancient Legends of Ireland, 1887. I glanced at that in college. Uh, it's kind of, it's kind of, kind of beautiful, kind of lyric. Uh, she kept salon at home. Uh, she hung out with George Bernard Shaw and William Butler Yeats. She was an inspiration for these younger writers. Uh, there are six books listed. She was a translator. Uh, okay. Now, by the time she was 50-something, she looked just like Oscar. <laughs> yes. Uh, she was very bohemian, very uh, artsy, we would call that. Here's a description of her by a woman visiting her. Uh, Mrs. Lady Wilde wore an old-fashioned purple brocade gown, yes, always dressed to the purple, a towering headdress of velvet, innumerable and enormous brooches, huge bracelets of turquoise and gold, rings on every finger. Oh, that's why I like to put on all that costume jewelry, right? Actually, Vanessa Redgrave did... Um, did do that in the film. She definitely uh, got herself up in a very bohemian grand manner. Anyway, uh, Oscar Wilde grew up and he edited a magazine called The Woman's World. It had originally been titled The Lady's World, but Oscar fixed that. He was the first, the first one, well, not perhaps not the first, but uh, the first one I know about to notice that lady was the wrong word and he changed it to Woman's World, changing it from a fashion magazine to um, a feminist magazine uh, for educated folks. And, of course, his mother was one of the chief contributors, that figures. <laughs> yes, Lady Wilde liked to write about clothing reform. I don't find anything about the... Um, I think it was the bicycles that brought in those bloomers. But let's see. Clothing reform. Lady Wilde writes, Literary dress should be free, untrammeled, and unswathed, as simple and as easily adjusted as Greek drapery. Right, tell me about it. Uh, Greco-Roman, ancient, yes. The fewer 
frills, cuffs, cascades of lace the better. For in moments of divine frenzy or feverish excitement, the authoress is prone to overturn her ink bottle. <laughs> yes, I think of George Sand, yes. Authoress, I always think of that, yes. An authoress is the wife of an author. Poetess is the wife of a poet. Anyway, uh, these women, uh, I think of the pre-Raphaelite paintings and styles. Yeats romanticized them so much. Uh, Goodness knows what they were really like. Most of what we know about them does come from the male poets of the time. And the tragic irony, of course, was that Oscar was put on trial for what was called the love that dare not speak its name. And he suffered horribly. Uh, Lady Wilde went to court all the time, but uh, it never caused her any serious suffering. Uh, You remember if you've seen the films or read the books, he was the first celebrity or, uh, let's call it, yes, uh, literary celebrity to be a martyr to gay pride, gay rights. Oscar's friends had told him to get out of England. There was a, a, a real backlash. Men were getting on the train to get out of town. There was some scandal uh, in the government, and all of the gay men fled to the continent, but Oscar stuck around, and uh, he was the scapegoat or the uh, uh, the fall guy. Lady Wilde, of course, told him to stay and fight for justice. And she told him, if you stay, even if you go to prison, you will always be my son. It will make no difference to my affection. Oscar stayed, was found guilty, yes. Ah, homosexuality, sent to prison, two years, uh, Ballad of Reading, jail. And, of course, the tragedy is that Oscar got uh, serious in prison and wrote The Ballad of Reading Jail, my most favorite poem as an adolescent, uh, perhaps wildly sentimental. Uh, and he wrote all those letters, uh, De Profundus, that wonderful, wonderful, long, long letter to Bosey, the young man who uh, led him astray, or whom he led astray. Lady Wilde died while he was in prison, possibly of a broken heart. That would have been 1896. Oscar died at the turn of the century, not long after. Uh, it's too bad that she she couldn't live a few years longer. She would have seen the full flowering of the Irish literary renaissance. She planted the seeds. Uh, Check out Wild Irish Roses by Trina Robbins. It's a uh, a book that profiles some of these women, some of these Irish roses. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. This has been Jennifer Stone. Light em up, boys. There's your picture Drop the shadow Out of 
You are listening to 94.1 KPFA Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. Thank you for your support, and this is America's longest-lasting listener-sponsored radio station. Thanks for your support. You are invited to visit the Intertribal Friendship House located at 523 International Boulevard in Oakland, California. On Thursday, March 15th, there will be three movies showing as a benefit for the house. Beginning at 7 p.m., Shell Mound, Spider Kid, and Exterminate Them, the California Story, will be showing in the company of their directors. On Friday, March 16th, there will be a benefit concert kickoff at Cafe Ache located in downtown Oakland at 1525 Webster Street. The next day on Saturday, March 17th, join us at Eastside Cultural Center located at 2277 International Boulevard. Also in Oakland, the children's program starts at 4 and the concert goes till 10. All proceeds benefit the Intertribal Friendship House of Oakland. Save the legacy. This is Free Speech Radio News for Tuesday, March 13, 2007. From KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Aura Bogado. President Bush threatens to veto security legislation recommended by the 9-11 Commission. Iraq's parliament begins its discussion on a controversial proposed oil law. And we'll hear why labor and immigrant rights groups are organizing against the national system of visas for temporary workers. Workers don't have the option to go to another job when their employer doesn't comply.